I, uh, I recently completed a biography of Winston Churchill. And typically, when we read about Churchill, we read about his, his great leadership in the war years of World War II. But the, the book that I read was a biography of his early life, and really in his 20s, during the Boer War. I don't know if you are familiar much with uh, that history. But it, it was fascinating because uh, of a lot of things, but mainly because it's sort of like reading a, a James Bond novel, um, a James Bond story of Churchill when he got captured. He was captured and then figured out how to escape and then went through the whole process of, of getting back to uh, England, getting back to, I should say, to the, uh, to the British embassy and was able to re-enter the war, actually. He chose to get back into the war even after he was captured. But uh, it was fascinating to read his life because so much of what he did, not only after the Boer War and his fame sort of spread because he escaped and became sort of a national hero, he was a war correspondent, and his writing, of course, uh, was uh, powerful even back in, th- in those days. He was, that's what he was doing there on the front was he was a war correspondent. He was reporting on the war. And he, uh, he became famous. He became sort of a household name after that. And this led to him being elected to parliament. And then, of course, the rest is history. He, uh, he had so- sort of uh, some detours in his political success, really a roller coaster of a career. It went up and down a number of times. But I was, I was fascinated to learn more about his life after that. After I read the biography, I watched some um, documentaries on him. And he, if you've ever looked at his career, it's actually pretty amazing, everything he's done. I mean, pretty much any position in the UK government he has held. And when he did that, he made some amazing reforms, like he designed tanks, and he provided for the Navy, and he uh, worked in finance. He, he had his hands in all these different areas. And then in 1940, when Providence allied uh, aligned all of the the dominoes, as it were, to fall just at the right places so that he became prime minister. Churchill said that he realized that his whole life had been a preparation for that moment. And if you look at the if you look at the biographies of everything that he's done, God providentially had used unwittingly uh, Churchill's decisions to prepare England for that moment and for him as leader. It's really uh, pretty astounding to see how the Lord worked it out. But I mentioned Churchill because I think, I think uh, obviously, when we look at these great heroes of, uh, of history, or the, the ones who have been used in history, whether or not you think they're a hero, we can easily see God working in and through their life and even preparing them for those crucial moments but uh, we often miss that in our own lives because we are so often in the thick of it that we don't get the big picture. I don't know if you've ever done uh, kind of a life map or life mapping of your life, but it would be an interesting exercise for you to do that, uh, not just in careers or in uh, uh, houses that you've lived in, or just think of major turning points that you've experienced. And I think if you'll if you'll uh, look at the big picture, you'll see how God designed this season of your life to lead 
to this next season of your life and to prepare you for this next season and that the flow of God's personal history walking along with you is astounding. It really is amazing how the Lord prepares us all through life for what seems to be this moment. And then he's preparing us in this moment for the next moment as it just continues on through life. I've seen that in my life a number of times. Times that I would think, uh, you know, I'd leave a job and think, God, I don't see how you can possibly put me in something that's a good fit for me. And then it turns out it's an even better fit. It's just how the Lord works. Well, this was also true in Abraham's life. And as we look at Genesis 22, we could almost quote Churchill in the sense that we could see how Abraham's whole life was a preparation for this point. This great test that God brought him to. Uh, was uh, Abraham was prepared for it. And, and here's the great thing. Abraham was ready. It just was a matter of stepping out and being obedient. And I could jump all the way to the end here in the sense of application for us, in the sense that when we get to the place and there is a great test in our lives, God has prepared us for that moment. It's not like the, that he's surprised, even though we are, But He has prepared us through many decisions throughout life, many scriptures we've read, we've memorized, prayers we've prayed, people we've met, decisions, failures. Everything that we've gone through has been a preparation for now. And it's true in the past, but it's also true of of the time in which we live right now. Uh, The book of Ephesians tells us that God prepares us or that God has prepared good works in advance that we may walk in them. And he also prepares us for those good works. This is true. Well, Genesis 22, you remember uh, Abraham's preparation for this. Uh, the um, God had promised Abraham, or back in, in that time it was Abram, through his descendants the world would be blessed. Trouble was, Abraham and Sarah couldn't have kids because they were both uh, past the, the age And Sarah definitely was past the age. In fact, the text tells us that she was barren. So Abraham thought that his servant, Eliezer, would be the answer to the promise. Years pass. Turns out God says, nope, this man won't be your heir, but it will be one from your own body. Great. So that means it's going to be Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah helped God out. Uh, Abraham and uh, the servant Hagar had a child, Ishmael. Great, we got it figured out. Now it's Ishmael that's going to be the answer. God says, no, the promise is going to come through Sarah. So as time goes on, it gets narrower and narrower until the Lord makes clear, not only is it going to come through Sarah, but she's going to conceive and have a child this time next year. And now Isaac's here. He is, he, in fact, years have passed. When we read verse 1, Isaac is now definitely a teenager uh, we're not exactly sure how old he is, but he is he's a young man. The text calls him a lad, which is from a Hebrew word that doesn't mean a little boy. It means he's, he's a young man. So years have passed once again, and now God is going to uh, require something of Abraham even more strenuous than all of the faith that he's had to have in the past. So let's read verse 1, and get into this wonderful story and its tremendous applications for us. 
Verse 1 says, It came about after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. I don't know if you've ever put yourself in Abraham's sandals at the moment that he heard that, but I I cannot even imagine it, probably because I haven't been prepared for such a test. Even though Abraham had been prepared, can you imagine what, what went through his heart? God told Abraham to do something that Abraham never would have thought about doing or never would have expected that God would have asked. Not only was God calling for child sacrifice, which is uh, something that God never has required, he was calling Abraham to sacrifice the heir to the promise. This was the big thing. Abraham's waited all this time for, for Isaac, and he knows Isaac is the answer to the promise, and now God says, take him out. Abraham waited 25 years for the promise, and then God says, give him back. It just didn't make sense. And I think we can misunderstand this chapter if we don't, if, if we miss the very first few words of verse 1, where it says, God tested Abraham. This is only a test. This isn't real. Now, we know that. Abraham didn't know that. But we are told that in verse 1, so that for us, the tension isn't, will Isaac live or die? The tension is, what will Abraham do? Will Abraham obey? So we know it's a test. Abraham didn't know. He thought it was a simple command with extraordinary results that would come. Um, We're told that God tested Abraham, and so that takes away the the, the horrific command. We know God never intended Abraham to kill Isaac. It's just a test. Uh, The details of the chapter don't tell us everything that we'd like to know about this situation. I mean, what did Abraham say to Sarah? We're going to be taking a camping trip. Who knows what they talked about? The text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't tell us Abraham's inner turmoil. Uh, It doesn't explain the seeming contradiction of of God's command, a child sacrifice. We're not told about what they talked about on the journey. I mean, there's so many details we'd like to know. The only thing the text emphasizes is as it relates to the test. Will Abraham obey? Look at verse 3. Not only did he obey, but immediately he obeys. Abraham arose, so Abraham arose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now let's look at what that place is. The land of Moriah, we're told. If you look at the, um, the map here, you can see obviously this is Israel. And Abraham is in Beersheba. We know he was in Beersheba because the end of chapter 21, 
tells us that he was. So Abraham is here in Beersheba when he gets this call from God to go to the land of Moriah. Um, The land of Moriah, you don't need to turn there, but you might jot down, and you probably even have in your margin there for Genesis 22, um, the, the verse 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. If we were to turn to 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1, it tells us that King Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. Uh, Mount Moriah is only mentioned twice in the whole Bible. It's mentioned here with Abraham, and it's mentioned with Solomon. So there's a connection between the place that God wanted Abraham to make this sacrifice and the place that God chose to build the temple. Very significant connection. So, we know Mount Moriah, we know the region of Moriah is Jerusalem. So, back to the map. Abraham traveled from Jeru- from Beersheba down here, up this road to right here where it says, um, I'm try to enlarge it a little bit, Salem or Jerusalem or Mount Moriah. This road that he traveled on is called the Way of the Patriarchs. Interesting, when you go to Israel today, you will probably unwittingly travel on this road. It's the main highway from north to south, and if you're going to travel from Jerusalem down to Hebron or to Beersheba, you're going to travel on the same road that Abraham was. In fact, uh, there are points along the way where the road sign calls it the, the, the Road of the Patriarchs or something like that, which is just amazing when you, you think about this 4,000-year-old road. But Abraham traveled up here to Jerusalem. Now, here's sort of a, a maybe a pop quiz for you. Um, this is not only Jerusalem. Of course, it's not even named that yet. But it's also called Salem. Where is that turned up in our story before? Well, if you're thinking Genesis 14 and Melchizedek, then you get an extra um, dollop of whipped cream on your um, on your ice cream today. Salem and Melchizedek. Remember back in Genesis 14, after uh, Abraham rescued Lot, it says that they went to Salem and that Abraham tithed a tenth and get to gave it to Melchizedek there at Salem or at Jerusalem. The um, Book of Hebrews gives a great bit of insight on this, where it talks about uh, Melchizedek connecting to Jesus and being a type of Jesus Christ. But I mention this because this isn't Abraham's first time to this area. He's been there before. And the time that he was there before, at least in the text, tells us Abraham gave a tenth to God. Abraham was all, had already given God very significant portion of his goods, as it were, at Moriah, at the region of Moriah, there at Jerusalem or ancient Salem. So Abraham uh, tithed to God there at Salem, but little did he know that the Lord would have him come back to this very area once again and give much more than 10%, much more than 100% of his goods, but would give his only son Isaac his very best. We'll look at verse 5 as this text continues. They've arrived at the place. It was a three-day journey. 
And we're not told what they talked about. We're not told what Abraham thought about. But can you just imagine the emotions? Verse 5 says, And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. I love the New American Standard, but here they sort of dropped the ball. They, it would have been nice if they had added, grammatically it's not required to add, we will return, but the Hebrew text does say that. And if you have the New International Version, then I stand up and applaud the translators of the New International Version because they translated that second we. Um, and the New International Version says, and we will worship, and then we will come back to you. Now think about that for a moment. Abraham planned to kill Isaac, and yet he tells his servants, we will come back. Now, you, I guess we could argue that Abraham was just saying, uh, saying that so that the servants would hear it, or maybe Abraham was deceiving them. But in reality, in the big picture of Scripture, we know that Abraham meant it. How could he say that? Well, keep your finger there in Genesis, if you would, and turn to Hebrews 11. And, and I'd like to show you a couple of verses, one that everybody looks at, and a couple that uh, usually aren't looked at. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 17. How could Abraham have a confidence that they could both return when he was about to take Isaac's life? Hebrews 11, starting at verse 17, says this, and again I'll read from the NIV. I like this uh, translation. It says, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And, figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. The uh, New American Standard translates it that uh, he received Isaac back as a type. It's a bit of a wooden translation, but that's closer to what the Greek says. The Greek talks about uh, as a figure, as a metaphor, as as a prophetic shadowing of a greater sacrifice. And that's, that's the idea. But to answer the question, how could Abraham say, we will worship and then we will come back to you? Answer, resurrection. That's how. Now, where did Abraham get the notion that there, there could be a resurrection? Great question. Same chapter, look up in verse 11. Hebrews 11, verse 11. It says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was one born even of man, and him as good as dead. See that word? Dead. Him as good as dead at that. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Where did Abraham get the notion that God could raise the dead? Answer, Abraham had already experienced that with Isaac's life. Isaac's life, his birth, his conception, was in a sense life from death. 
because it says here in verse 11 and 12 that Abraham was as good as dead. And if we were to look in Romans chapter 4, uh, let me see, Romans chapter 4, verse 19, uh, Paul even refers to the deadness of Sarah's womb. He makes that, uh, and then he also says that Abraham was as good as dead. Interesting, in that context, uh, Paul goes on to connect the dead, the deadness of Abram's, of, uh, of Sarah's womb, and Abraham as good as dead, to the Father God raising Jesus from the dead. There's a connection there as well in Romans 4, and it's the same idea here. But uh, So where did Abraham get the notion that, that Isaac would be raised from the dead? Because Isaac had already experienced that in a sense. His very life was life from death. The deadness of Sarah's womb and the deadness of Abraham. So Abraham's certainty was in God's promise. You can turn back to Genesis now. Abraham's certainty was in God's promise, not God's methods. That's something to ponder, isn't it? Abraham's certainty was in God's promise, not God's methods. Think about that in your life as well, and I can think about that in mine. The details of how God's going to make it happen, we don't know. We just know that he'll make it happen. Even when it seems like obeying God is a direct contradiction and in some sense an opposition to the very thing that he's promised in our lives, God is going to work through that and in spite of that to bring about a result that is far more wonderful than if we'd done it the way that makes more sense to us. I think of Job when I think of this situation. The issue wasn't uh, so much the how of God's methods. Why was God allowing this in Job's life? Why was God allowing this in Abraham's life? Why does God allow it in our lives? The issue isn't God's method, but rather how are we going to respond to it? Remember, this is a test for Abraham. Abraham is the one that we're looking at here, not God. In the book of Job, Job is the one that we're looking at, not God. And in our lives, our response is the response that matters, not God's methods. God's going to work it out in a way that we couldn't possibly understand. But the good news is that uh, we don't have to understand it. We just need to know that he's in control. So, Abraham, without complete understanding, but with complete faith, verse 6, we're told, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son, on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. I love that last phrase, the two of them walked on together. One just as confused as the other, (laughs) and yet both trusting God. The intimacy of that scene is is tear-jerking. Don't you know that Abraham's heart was just pounding in how God was going to work this out? Verse 9, 
it says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there, and arranged the wood, and bound his son Isaac, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand, and took the knife to slay his son. These two verses are uh, wonderful for us in the sense of just pure storytelling. Because up to this point, I mean, we're skipping lots of stuff. We don't know Sarah's conversation with Abraham. We don't know what they talked about in the three-day journey. I mean, there's so much that the story doesn't tell us. But here in verses 9 and 10, look how the, the action slows down to become, you know, literally moment by moment. Then he he built the altar. Then he arranges the wood on the altar. Then he ties his son. Then he lays his son on top of the wood. Then Abraham stretches out his hand. Then he grabs the knife. I mean, it's slowing down moment by moment to draw this out as long as possible. What is Abraham going to do? And he is obeying. Uh, We're not sure how old Isaac was, but as I mentioned, uh, tradition has Isaac as a grown man. Jewish tradition does, uh, and a grown man is 23 years old. But we have to base it off the text, not just tradition. And the text simply tells us that he is a lad. The uh, the same word is used in Genesis of Ishmael of uh, when he was 17, back in chapter 21. So that's just the chapter prior to this. So we can assume that uh, Isaac was about that same age, you know, 17, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. But the point is, old enough to wrestle a hundred-plus-year-old man. Uh, Isaac was not, was not uh, uh, a captive here. He was a willing sacrifice. The point of, of mentioning that he is an older, that he is a young man and not a little kid is that uh, he, he could have resisted. Not only that, it was Isaac that carried all the wood up the hill. This is a strong, strapping young man. And so for this process to get all the way to verse 10 shows not only Abraham's willingness to sacrifice, but Isaac's willingness to be that sacrifice. Just listen to a couple of verses from Isaiah chapter 53. You might want to just jot them down as, as a reference, but Isaiah 53, verses 7 and verse, verse 7 and verse 10. I read these to show that the, that the divine partnership uh, worked on a higher level than simply Abraham's willingness to do the sacrificing and uh, Isaac's willingness to be sacrificed. Think of the grander sense of what this represents with Jesus dying on the cross. Isaiah 53.7 says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. The willingness of the Messiah, the servant of God, and we know that to be Jesus Christ the willingness to be sacrificed. And then verse 10 says this, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. It was the, and, the, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. 
So here you see in, in a divine, this divine partnership of willing to sacrifice, willing to be sacrificed. It was true of Isaac and Abraham. It was true of Christ and the Father. I wonder what the last words were just before Abraham was about to plunge that knife. I wonder what the last words were. We aren't told. But we are told that Abraham fully intended to go through with it, raise the knife with the purpose of killing his son. And then this blessed verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Don't you know he was glad to say that? And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now Abraham learns here what we knew back in verse 1. This was only a test. The command was given to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham learns that it was really a test of Abraham sacrificing his will, himself, in a sense. This is a a test for Abraham, his willingness to give up Isaac, the son he loved. And then God immediately provides a substitute. Verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Interesting phrase in verse 14. Moses writes that little parenthetical, adds that parenthetical statement, as it is said to this day. So here Moses, some centuries later, is writing this in the book of Genesis, and that place is still called that. That place is still called the Lord will provide. Um, Once again, let me show you this map and show you where this is a little more specifically. So as we were looking earlier, this is Jerusalem or uh, Salem, Mount Moriah. And go to the next picture. So this is uh, obviously Jerusalem, and we are looking south. So this this direction down here is Beersheba. Way, I mean, over the hill, you can't see it, obviously, but it's way down this direction. And so they would have walked up the ridge, and this ridge that you can see right here is where the road was. It was the road, the road was on the ridge. And so they would have left the servants and the donkey somewhere on the ridge and then walked over to this area. Now this hill, or mountain as it's called, probably hill would be a, a more better, un, better understanding, is Mount Moriah because this is where the temple was. And so tradition tells us that this is where Isaac, uh, Abraham sacrificed Isaac. In fact, the dome of the rock, the rock that it covers. I don't know if um, you've seen pictures of the the rock underneath here, but there is an actual open bare rock that is sort of the crest of Mount Moriah. So it's like the highest point. It's the peak of this hill. Now, when Herod the Great came in, he he uh, chiseled off and flattened off this whole area to greatly enlarge the Temple Mount. 
But this area right here under the Dome of the Rock was preserved, and there is actually a, a carve, carved out in the rock there is a place that fits the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. So we know that this, uh, there's a lot of reasons that we know that this is where the temple was. But uh, this is also likely where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. We don't know for sure if it was on Mount Moriah, because Genesis 22 doesn't require that. It just says that uh, go to the region or the land of Moriah and then uh, sacrifice him on one of the hills that I'll show you. It doesn't say on Mount Moriah, but it just, just says, you know, it leaves it ambiguous. So we don't know for sure, but tradition tells us that it's Mount Moriah. It could be, or it could be another, another hill. But uh, nevertheless, it was definitely this region. So we're looking south, and uh, here is the Temple Mount. This next shot kind of shows from the other direction. Now we're looking east. So north is over on this side. And you can see the Temple Mount right here. I don't know if it's too small for you to see. I can enlarge it a little bit. But you can see the Temple Mount here. And I show you this picture to show you if we were to look just about a few hundred yards to the west, you would see this dome. It's a gray dome. I don't know if you can see that on your screen or not, but this is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where uh, Jesus uh, Christ died on the cross for our sins. Obviously, it was outside the city walls at the time. And this little small dome represents Calvary, and the big dome here represents where the tomb was. And so this church covers that area. But I show this to say, look at the proximity here between the hill of uh, where the temple was built and the hill ultimately where the, the saying was fulfilled, on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And all of Israel, and, and, and uh, just imagine the prophecy of hundreds of years before this happened, God nailed not only the uh, where it happened, but exactly the location and the, the beautiful metaphors in which it would occur. Uh, it's just marvelous, the connection that God uses, even in geography, to make the connection between Abraham and Isaac and uh, the Father and the Son. In fact, if you go, were to go into the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, you would see this mosaic right above the area of Calvary. And it is a mosaic of Abraham getting ready to sacrifice Isaac and the angel of the Lord stopping Abraham. So whoever put that mosaic in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre really knew their stuff. And it's beautiful to see that. It, it, the mosaic is literally right there above Calvary, or beside Calvary. I like this uh, also being in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre because the text tells us, Genesis 22 tells us that it was the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord, not an angel, the angel. And this is uh, sort of questionable because we can't know for sure, but the, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord could represent the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ because the angel of the Lord certainly represents the Lord. And the only uh, person of the Godhead who has manifested himself to people physically has been the Lord Jesus Christ. And so very well 
uh, could be that uh, it's the son as the angel of the Lord who stops Abraham from uh, from sacrificing his own son. Uh, the, and, and if that is the case, that is just filled with beauty and irony. Well, there's some great applications for us from this text. Um, I won't. Uh, we won't read the last few verses there, but it's just wonderful uh, affirmation of God's promises to uh, to Abraham. But some several applications here. Let me just mention a few by way of uh, relevancy to our lives. And the first is this: God will certainly test the faithfulness of His believers. God will test us. He will not tempt us. He will test us. Big difference. In fact, the book of James tells, tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone. So we know that God's never tempting us. If we feel tempted, it's not God. It's, it's Satan. In fact, interesting in the New Testament, anyway, there are two words for uh, test and temptation. When God is testing, the Greek word there always emphasizes that it's a, a test for the purpose of showing approval or success. When Satan tests us, It's to cause us to fail. It's two different words and two different purposes. Satan does it to make us fail. God does it to show that we will succeed. And that's exactly what happened with Abraham. And that is what God does in our lives. God tested Abraham. God tests us that we would be faithful. Um, And often that test involves, like it did Abraham, here's the second principle, that God te- God's tests may require surrendering to Him our very best. This is tough. It's one thing to uh, you know to resist a second cupcake. It's another thing to um, to lose the very best or to surrender the very best in your life. Whatever that very best represents, sometimes God asks us to give it up, and sometimes, as in the case with Isaac, we get it back. But sometimes we don't get it back unless there's resurrection. And I think that's essential for us to understand because, you know, it's a great story here. Isaac didn't have to die. Great. And then they go back to Beersheba with a happy ending. We don't always get those happy endings, do we? Sometimes our Isaacs die. Sometimes there are things in our lives that in this life are irreversible. And we could mistake those irreversible conditions as God letting us down. Think about Abraham for for a a second again. Remember that passage in Hebrews 11? uh, Abraham was able to obey God because he believed that God was able to raise the dead. And in a sense, he got Isaac back from the dead because Abraham had determined to kill him. But think about it in the case of, uh, of Jesus. The disciples, when they followed Christ, they followed Christ uh, believing that he was the Messiah and that the kingdom would come and that they would reign with him and they had all these expectations, but the cross shattered those expectations and there was death. Think about that. Talk about irreversible uh, circumstances. They thought it was over. And the two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus were telling Ironically, the resurrected Jesus, we thought he was the Messiah. And in reality, they were talking to the very one who was the one who would be the solution to their, to their hopes. 
But my point is that it took resurrection. And for Christ, Christ's resurrection restored those hopes and those longings and the answers to all the disciples' desires. It's the same with us. The challenge is we just haven't experienced that resurrection yet. But it's coming. It's coming. And Abraham's life shows us that we can be faithful even in spite of commands that sometimes seem to undermine the very hope that we, that we have in God because resurrection will right it all. That when we experience resurrection with Christ, uh, all of a sudden it's all going to snap together and it's all going to make sense and we're going to see that God's way was best after all. And really, that's the third, the third uh, principle, is that we can surrender our best to God because God provides. Abraham said, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And it was, wasn't it? It was provided through Jesus Christ, not only his death, but also his resurrection. Interesting that Jesus was buried uh, pretty much right beside where he died. And that gives us great insight into this text because it wasn't simply Jesus' death here that is the implication. Resurrection plays a part of this story, doesn't it? And it plays an essential part of our story. On the Mount of the Lord, not only was it provided in death, but also in resurrection. If we were to go back to that passage in Romans 4 where it talked about the deadness of Sarah's womb and all that, and it connected to the, to the death of Jesus and then the resurrection of Jesus, we would see that the connection there is also um, a connection that we need to make in these daily life decisions that we struggle with. Abraham discovered something wonderful in this chapter. And here's just a final thought for you. Abraham discovered that to obey God is to find new assurance in him. Think about that concept. To obey God is to find new assurance in Him. There is an assurance waiting for us on the other side of obedience that we don't have now. And once we experience that, that transition from the tension, should I obey, to obeying, on the other side, there is an assurance, a sweetness, a depth, a growth, a fellowship with Christ that isn't on this side of obedience, it's on the other side. Abraham got to experience that, and we can too. Let's pray. Father, this is no, without doubt one of the greatest chapters of our Bible. And even a short 40-minute walk through it and all of the relevant uh, implications that it gives us and touch points in the New Testament isn't sufficient to plumb the depths of its beauty, of its emotion, and of its application in our lives. Father, as you call us to surrender our Isaacs, our very best, give us the strength to do it well, knowing that you make good on your promises and that resurrection is the key. It is the key to our confidence and our assurance and our, and our, uh, our obedience in those moments, of, uh, those moments of decision. Thank you, Lord, for this text. Thank you for the encouragement it gives us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.